1: Independent Melbourne Radio 3R.
0: On today's show. When we left the hotel it was raining, a light, fine rain as can sometimes happen in Tokyo in October. I said that where we were going was not far. We would only need to get to the station, the same one that we had arrived at yesterday, and then catch two trains and walk a little down the streets. "'until we got to the museum. "'I got out my umbrella and opened it, "'pulled up the zipper of my coat. "'It was an early morning and the street was filled with people, "'most walking away from the station, "'rather than towards it, as we were.' All the while my mother stayed close to me as if she felt that the flow of the crowd was a current and if if we were separated we would not be able to make our way back to each other but continue to drift further and further apart. The rain was gentle and consistent. It left a fine layer of water on the ground which was not asphalt but a series of small square tiles, if you cared enough to notice. That's an excerpt from Jessica Owl's long-awaited second novel, a really beautiful and finely crafted work and the winner of the inaugural novel prize, Cold Enough for Snow?, follows a woman and her mother as they travel through Japan, catching trains, visiting galleries, eating out, admiring local architecture, all the while talking about family and horoscopes and the weather and sometimes falling silent, the space between the two women haunting the kind of unspoken thoughts and feelings that sometimes make those closest to us somehow seem unbridgeably distant. This volume really does seem too slim for the weight of ideas it provokes about writing, life, and familial memory, but we'll be discussing just some of these, as well as the craft behind it, with Jessica Hour, who joins me now on the line. Jess, very warm welcome to Backstory. Thank you, Mel.
1: It's so nice to be here.
0: Now it's uh, honestly um, lovely to be able to talk to you on this. My first show back in a in a long while. I've um, I've just been briefly speaking with you off air about the fact that I recently reread your first novel, uh, Cargo, a young adult uh, novel that was published back in 2011. I won't delve too much into that now, except to say that this latest book is uh, very, very different uh, to your earlier work, but still contains some of the incredible talent that you have for compressing a lot into a, a very small space. I want to. I want to s- briefly touch on that. How much work went into such a finely crafted but slim novel?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think there's always a lot of work probably involved in writing. Um, I guess it depends how you see it. As you said, it's been quite a long time since um, Cargo was published—about ten years, I think. So you could say that it was ten years. Um, worth of work that sort of went into it, Um, but that was 10 years of a lot of things not working actually. Um, And it was more that when I sort of found the form for Cold Enough for Snow, um, you know, it it did sort of come together pretty quickly, maybe in about two to three months. So (laughs) either it's it's not a very big amount of work or a lot of work, depending on how you want to look at it. as to the shortness, I don't know. It's not that I actually tried to write um, short novels. I actually would like it if I could put more down on the page, I think, um, with Cargo and with this one. Um, but it's just how it turned out, and I, I guess that maybe deep down there is something in me that, that likes minimalism. And, you know, I think I sort of read somewhere once that, uh, you know, a novel is finished when you, you can't subtract any more from it. And, you know, I think that's probably how I work. I don't want any excess. Um, you know, I want each sentence to, to, to do some work. Um, and so that's how you end up with short novels, I guess.
0: Well, there's not nouns of fat in this. It's as though, I mean, just reading that brief excerpt, every single kind of clause within that is adding another subtle layer to something that could itself be... Uh, perhaps a paragraph. And I am wondering about that style. I know you've said that you wrote that quite quickly, potentially the long period, you know, these fallow periods are where we make connections, I guess, and where that kind of uh, prose conformant perhaps. But can we talk a little bit about writing a pared back style? I've had other authors on the show who, who do lean into that style. And I sometimes, uh, I remember, I think it was Favelle Parrett talking to her about this and and her sort of um, discussion about the ghosts on the page that are really the, the ghosts of what you've written before and, and you've cut out, that you've pared back. Is that your style to write long and cut back or does it kind of come out in this sort of very you know, well-filtered, quite diamond-like prose? Um.
1: Yeah, no, it's definitely not my style to write more and then cut back. If anything, I'm just struggling to put things down on the page. Um, I do like the idea of, you know, I guess like texture in a paragraph and, you know, each sentence rather than maybe just being a flat description of something, you know, working to add dimension, working to, to say something a little bit new each time. Um, I think I'm, I'm a big rewriter, so, um, you know, until I get towards maybe even the end of a text, every day I'll go back and go over what I've written before and, and rewrite and rewrite. Um, and yeah, I suppose on a, a sentence level, I guess I've just always really respected and aspired to, you know, good sentences. Um, and I, I think it's very difficult, um, but. I suppose I you know, sort of worked um, in editing and um, for a while, and when, when you spend that much time proofreading or line editing and you really see, um, you know, what meaning can change based on even the construction of a sentence or the grammar and how that lends authority or tone or humour, I think you sort of develop a real sensitivity to that. Um, you know, at the same time, I think language is actually really hard. It's really hard to um, find the right word that creates a freshness of meaning um, and not to hide behind poetry. And, and I still think perhaps I, I do hide behind poetry a bit too much, but, you know, it's really difficult to find the, the correct word for something um, that, you know, is still new and gives the reader a sense of what you mean. Um, you know, a lot of words, if you use them too much, they can end up being a bit dead on the page. Um, and conversely stuff that is cliche or plain can actually be quite effective if used in the right way.
0: Yeah I feel I mean there's a there's an usage of language in this that I feel as though I want to <laughs> I want to show to writing students particularly because it is pared back language it's simple you've really aired on the, the side of using simple prose and it's all the more effective for it. I think you know there's a a potential to come off too staccato by doing that, but I think your use of commas really gives it a rhythm um, that that belies that. So you've you've got this this wonderfully sort of poetic quality, but at the same time, it's very uh, sharp and um, and plainly written prose that, that makes it all the more beautiful. And it does sound like, do you feel as though sometimes you have to cut out the odd word? I mean, there's next to no adjectives really in here either. It's fairly unadorned, um, plainly written and yet very descriptive.
1: Um, yeah, I did, I did go back and cut out descriptions because I think, like I said, it um, it can be quite easy once you sort of know how to write to add in descriptions. Um, and so that was something I did do um, when rewriting, but also particularly in edits to sort of, you know, cut out the second description, say, and just leave the single one. Um, and I think even, like, you know, plain repetition can be really useful. Um, I did cut that out because I think I did it a bit too much. But even, you know, people like Nau's guide. Got- a lot of repetition, a lot of the same word. Things are just green or blue or clear or something. And I I actually think that that can be good in a way because it leaves space for the reader to really imagine, you know, the green or the shape instead of telling them. And I think leaving, leaving space for that imaginative imaginative connection um can be quite useful
0: one of the effects of this is is an overwhelming sense as you're reading this of of the dislocation of the author there's a sense that they are observing the world that they're slightly outside of it um that they're in you know we're getting a, a richness to the characters and to the the narrator themselves but at the same time there's a sense of that Unbridgeable distance, as I, I reference in the introduction, that even with those closest to her, uh, including her partners or her mother, she's still some somewhat distant. Was that? Uh, did that really influence your choice of using this style to kind of capture that that feeling without outright saying it?
1: Um, yeah, possibly. I think so. Um, I think I sort of. Um... I guess the writerly persona, I feel, is is really just, you know, an observer. Um, And, you know, sometimes I think even myself, I can sort of feel quite passive in the world. Like it feels like it takes a great energy to change things or direct things. Um, And I think, you know, in relation, maybe a writerly character only really watches and observes. And that was certainly um, part of the voice. Um, the other thing maybe was just that I like the idea of a lot of indirect communication um, and I think that's certainly something that I think happens within my family and maybe just within my personality as well. So, um, you know, not saying things explicitly or saying things um, to which imply other deeper feelings I think maybe went to part of that voice as well.
0: What isn't said in this novel is really the biggest part of it in some ways there is no dialogue uh, reported here and essentially there you know I guess that is the underlying sort of message of it is this idea of of what is unspoken quite often you see the narrator um, you know particularly there's one relationship that's described where she's very much not expressing her side of things or her feelings in it, and as a result what looks on the surface to be a strong relationship is in fact one where there's an inherent lack of, of understanding. Um, it sort of seems like this this kind of theme of being understood without words or not being understood without words sort of seems to flip throughout the different uh, parts of the, the novel. I'm quite fascinated with how you've done that.
1: Um, yeah, I think that's definitely a, a sort of an ongoing question of mine and, and a concern. I think that, you know, on the one hand, um, you know, language can be so so tricky, I think. I think that, you know, it can actually be really difficult to say what we mean. Um, we kind of assume that we're saying these words and the person on the other end is is understanding them, but really... What we're saying is so dependent on like our lived experience, our embodied experience, our mood, our place and time and history and culture. So I think I'm always kind of wary of that trap. Um, you know, if, if you think about even a, people having a fight or an intimate conversation, it's it's constant struggle to to understand each other. Um, and then I think with the sort of you know the distance and the intimacy between maybe the mother and her daughter, I think. Um, you know, that's kind of quite common I think, um, sometimes with family members that you and particularly maybe mothers and daughters, you have this kind of intimate, almost telepathic feeling for them and understanding of their mood. At the same time, you know, as a parental figure, like what were they like before they had you? What what is their internal world? You know, and I think particularly the mother in this um, story keeps that um, purposely at a distance, and the daughter kind of wants to, to shatter that. Um, and, you know, I think maybe the extra added layer of that distance for that is maybe the, the fact that, um, you know, the mother is a migrant. And, um, you know, I think it's quite common for a lot of uh, families maybe to have a certain Difference or distance between them, whether that's personality or class or education or something. But maybe the thing with migration is that you know it makes time happen very fast. Change can happen within you know one or two generations. And one, maybe one of the questions I was thinking about is you know what happens when you might have differences in personality and character and class and education and language and geography and history. You know what does that do to that already? Um, that challenge already of
0: knowing another person. I I think that, you know, there's a, a real, um, really what you are speaking about fundamentally is wound throughout the book. This idea of, you know, being a migrant or being from a migrant family, that distance that it puts between a mother and a daughter, um, the kind of attempts at understanding of, you know, finding the self is sort of really wound in in this very elegant way that I find incredibly compelling and and very moving. Um, There's little mentions here about uh, the narrator's mother fluidly using chopsticks and her daughter's more awkward use, um, the possibly fabricated memory of the uncle and, you know, who's um, supposedly working in a a shop that sells Birds and has a a lost love um, that then later she's told by the mother wasn't the case and you're never quite clear on whether the mother sort of has told her something but then refuses to acknowledge it. There's all of these little moments of of uh, of a kind of lack of understanding or a you know this need to grasp something that can't quite be grasped. And one of the things that kind of made me feel quite moved particularly was the comparison of uh, the narrator going to a, a uni lecturer's house with its almost museum-like qualities and then comparing it to the family home with its post-modern array jumble of colours and noise and objects, um, of which the narrator could not help being vaguely ashamed. The two places are kind of linked um, or bridged by the same porcelain bowl set um, their history is stemming from China and I found that that sense of you know a second generation migrant trying to fit in um, into a into a you know the culture that they find themselves in and trying to sort of work out where they've come from and how that fits to be just utterly moving as someone from you know who is a second generation Australian as well Um, can you talk about how you've wound those in because they've they're very subtly done
1: Um, yeah, it's, um, I guess I, I sort of like the idea of, you know, not saying things too explicitly, because I think with all these sorts of feelings, they, they are really hard to articulate. Um, and, you know, I sort of wanted to, to just capture the ones that were almost unsayable. Um, I think the thing with, you know, being the child of migrants is that often you might have sort of, um, I guess you know for example for me I've got these really strong childhood memories of things like objects or food or a particular piece of jewelry or decoration or something that I'll remember really viscerally from my childhood and it'll be this really strong sort of sense memory and then you know as you sort of grow up I I might forget it and then I'll encounter it again later in life and it'll be this kind of huge sort of jog and a wash of feeling um and so i feel very like Deeply connected to a thing like the bowls, for example, or or seeing certain things out and around, um, out of context of your childhood, which which is and they've made their way back into mainstream culture. Um, but at the same time, I won't underst- I won't know the name of them. I won't really know the context. I'll just know that it was a part of our sort of family tradition. Um, and I think I guess I always think about. Um, you know, how we sometimes feel the currents of history and culture, and that has an impact on us in some way, because on some level we do we do know it's happened and we feel it because it's in our culture, but um, we may not understand it. So, you know, with the, the bowls, um, you know, we did use those bowls at my home, and I think they're really common. I think a lot of people probably recognize them. The strange thing is that since... You know, when I was a kid, maybe we only saw them at Chinese restaurants or in my house. They might become a little bit trendy suddenly, you know, um, and you might see them and encounter them outside um, in life. But the history of the high bulbs is, you know, really interesting in the sense that um, I think blue and white porcelain was made in China um, for, I think, quite a number of years, um, and you know, it was exported to Europe when trade sort of opened up. And I think Europeans and British and France just suddenly loved this blue of white porcelain and became a huge commodity, um, except for the fact that they didn't know how to make it because it involved cowling clay, and I think the process was very secret. So because of that rarity, and the fact that they couldn't manufacture it themselves it became this really sort of um, venerated cultural object but then of course um, eventually they did work out how to make that sort of porcelain or something like that porcelain and then trade sort of stopped and then it sort of you know sort of led down in history and became mass marketed and you know I think it's just funny thinking about the feelings of that and how that then relates to your feelings um, I guess as Um, a second-generation migrant in the world, to be encountered with this culture that has this rich history that you don't really know much about, um, but that you sort of feel has some power, um, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there's, uh, you know, this is picked up as well in this uh, idea of Hong Kong. And I say idea because at one point the narrator talks about her sister travelling there um, as a young person and then again, Um, In her 20s, and feeling as though she's seeing it for the first time, uh, even though she has been there when she was much younger. This, you know, how much of your knowledge of a place is based on the place and how much of it is based on family stories that were perhaps um, mistold or misunderstood. Um, These kinds of things of constructing a place that is a place built from memories or from false memories even or from um, a misinterpretation of memory is such an interesting legacy of Being from somewhere and yet not from there, that you have managed to again just weave in with these very subtle uh, kind of um, inclusions in the book.
1: Yeah, and I think, um, you know, going back to what you were saying about the uncle story as well, that's got elements of that. And I guess maybe, you know, the feeling of that is that um, often when you know, you're the child migrants, you or I guess all children and parents do this, but you know, you families narrate themselves. They tell stories all the time. Um, and but when, you know, other family members or home is absent, you don't have that other person to to come and meet your aunt or your uncle or see that old home and, and see it as well as have the story. You often just have the story. Um and then I think so you can sort of misremember them. You know, memory can be really tricky. Um, we can't always trust it. Um, and at the same time, I think particularly, say, with the uncle story where, you know, he's sort of got this romance happening with this um, other young girl and it's quite tragic and he's selling songbirds. I guess I wanted to do a, a sort of really sort of subtle nod to the fact that you can... Um, also absorb stories which aren't true and are maybe a little bit clichéd about your own culture. I I was sort of trying to be maybe a bit tricky there. Um, I didn't want to make it too explicitly clichéd, so it's not, you know, but even the details of songbirds and and the bamboo and that sort of thing, it it does sort of suggest that, um, you know, you can absorb things which which also um, aren't true about yourself, I think.
0: Yeah, it's a really, um, again, I think those kind of subtle inclusions are, are hit all the harder in to a certain extent because you buy into them as a reader and then you realize what's happening. Um, and that I think in, in fact, in, I, I won't kind of spoil the book too much for people, but you are really gradually getting that sense of, you know, the narrator working out, uh, who they are through that as well at the same time as you as the reader trying to work it all out. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Jess, I was really uh, kind of thrilled uh, to read in this book. What I feel like is one of the uh, profound justifications for why, as we have so many times talked about recently, a broad-based arts degree or the humanities is so important. I'll just read an excerpt uh, from the book. Every time I finished a text, I felt like I was done. But then the same thing would happen again and again, a tearing open of my thoughts, a falling into a vast unknown space where the air rushed and all my senses were overwhelmed. It was as if this knowledge was truly an elixir, a drug, and yet something eluded me. I really love how you kind of capture with this the real difference between the act of reading and the kind of way it imparts or encourages grasping for understanding or creating understanding versus other ways of acquiring knowledge that may be more rote perhaps or um, you know, trying to learn something that, that perhaps doesn't give you that strange kind of nuance that you do get from reading or from the study of literature. Um, can you talk a bit about this because you do really go into that in, in different ways throughout the book.
1: Um, yeah, I mean I think it's really interesting, you know, with Reading things, whether it's literature or humanities, history, like arts, um, you know, I think there's what I'm looking for anyway when I read is it's just that moment of recognition, right, or, or revelation. It it helps you understand something about your life or, or something you're going through. It could be little or it could be big. Um, but at the same time, it's quite funny because I find it fleeting, you know, um it, it's not like you reach reached this place of complete knowledge and, and suddenly you remain there. It just always kind of disappears. Um, and so you kind of look for it again and again, and I think that's something that um, the narrator feels. Um, but I think as well I just, you know, I wonder about the sort of person who who wants to understand things, to understand why things happened and why things are the way they are, Um you know, I feel like maybe in a in a capitalist society, some people are happy just to be told, and they just want to know the right answer or the right way of doing things, and and you know maybe that's good enough for them. But then I think um, you know people like the narrator, maybe like a lot of writers, um, you know, want to question things and question how we came to be here, and and I guess it's difficult because it's not like there is another part of the novel where I think the mother says that doesn't really change anything, you know, you still sort of suffer. And I think that's true. Um, But somehow I think holding that sort of understanding can be quite powerful. Um, And so I think that's sort of a a quest or a searching that she's kind of going through constantly. And I think you can see that reflected as well in these sort of observations and the the questions about art and, and how art is made.
0: There is that really interesting um, comparison with the, you know, um, Laurie, who's the narrator's boyfriend uh, or partner at a certain point, um, who is who on a rafting trip with his brother and gets tumbled in the water and for a moment I think both of them think they're going to die. Um, come out, they come out of it and then don't talk about it for a similar reason that they feel as though talking about it won't change anything and they have to keep going. There's more of the trip to go, I thought of that as something more, you know, of a reason why many people struggled to write during lockdown, because writing does require that self-reflective act, that moment where you you sit and you look at yourself or you look into yourself, which certainly for me and for many others became enormously uncomfortable uh, when you were just trying to get through things, when you were just trying to to get to the next rapids, if you like. Uh, You couldn't pause, at least I couldn't to take that in. I know for others they, they found solace in writing but, but that was my experience. So it's sort of interesting to see how you've you've juxtaposed these ideas.
1: Um yeah, I suppose it's um, I mean I also found it really difficult to to write during lockdown and it's really interesting to think about the sort of um, you know, environment that creates that time for reflection, and maybe, you know, like I said, maybe some people don't want to to sort of do it, and but also, yeah, I just wonder, like, what um, I feel there is a worth to it, but yet I, I struggle to to put a finger on what that worth is.
0: Yeah, it's probably a good um, jumping off point to maybe talk about. The, the distance between the two novels that you've created. So you wrote, um, or rather, Cargo was published in 2011 to great acclaim, a really lovely uh, young adult novel. Uh, now, 10 years on, you have uh, released your second novel. There was a distance between those two, and I know, obviously uh, having produced quite a successful first novel, there was probably a lot of pressure on you uh, to produce a second um, rather soon. I know that's certainly something something that particularly uh, debut authors feel the pressure of. I wanted to talk about that because I know even producing a novel is such an extraordinary feat uh, and one that many people who listen to this show, I'm sure, are struggling with themselves. So I, I do want to talk about that. How was it um, for you uh, to kind of be working on another novel? How did it feel to kind of try to, I guess, to, to use a trope, work on that difficult second novel?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, I think in, in a weird way, I possibly felt the opposite. Um, I sort of thought that um, I, I sort of thought that I could do better than cargo, and that it was um, in some ways still quite a young work. Um, and so, I actually kind of think I decided to um, take time and and not rush into it. Um, I think that it's. I mean it's difficult because um, you know, when you're when you're younger I think you, you or with the first novel, you know, you're there's nothing to compare it against. So it, it is in it's still difficult but in some ways it's quite easy to write. Um, but I think once you sort of you know, it was like with knowledge that the more you know, the more you realise you don't know. Um, so I did try and write, you know, um, quite a few things. Um, but I, I knew I wanted it to, to be, I guess alive in some way um and while I did really try for quite a number of years um you know none of them really worked and none of them were um yeah but alive um so I think that's sort of it took a long time but I think um you know it's easy to say in retrospect but I think I was okay with trying to take that time um I think that it takes a while as well to to find your voice and the right form, but once you find the right form, then I think everything does kind of follow. And I think that was that was probably the trick for the second novel in this case. Um, I mean, there's another part of me that sort of thinks that over the years, uh, you know, growing up, I kind of thought I, I do I do want to have another work. At the same time, um, writing is more of a way of life. Um, it's something that I would probably do even if you know nothing was published ever again. Um, so I was also maybe trying to take myself a bit out of that uh, cycle um, and that pressure to sort of churn out something and, and just see it um, as a bit more of a practice.
0: It is rare to hear people um, speak like this, I think, now, uh, particularly when you're you're considering a career as a writer. I remember interviewing Marcus Uzak about this very thing. He had an enormous. Um, book with the book thief and then there was a lot of pressure to then produce other works and he took a long time to produce um, another work and that was in no small part because of that pressure to write but you know writing is one of those processes that does require sometimes quite a few dead bodies on your on your laptop um, or whatever it is that you're using to write on so I feel like uh, it is interesting to sort of hear you say this is a it's a way of life as opposed to just a vocation.
1: Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I guess, I don't know, in a a capitalist society, there's just so much pressure to produce something, right? And that's how we sort of operate. But, you know, with writing, it's, or any sort of artistic practice, it's like, it's a mystery how it, you know, happens. There's no formula. Um, And, yeah, I just think that the value I find in writing is, is, I mean, publication is obviously fantastic, but it, it is something that I think just is a nice um, and fulfilling way of being. Um, so I guess I sort of, you know, when you're younger, you might have dreams of being a full-time writer or something like that, but I sort of, I just think it's really just about having a day job and, you know, um, finding space for that outlet and and finding that balance. Um, so yeah, I think that's sort of maybe over the years, the approach that I, I came to.
0: I just want to finish up our chat and it's hard to believe that we're already close to the end of Of the hour. Just gone by so quickly. Uh, You were the winner of the inaugural The Novel Prize. Uh, It... um Actually covers three different publishers across three different jurisdictions. The Australian publisher is Giramondo, but there's also a publisher, and I think I'll try and get this right. Fitzcarraldo um, Editions in London, and I think New York's New Directions as well. Um, And you also got a cash prize, but immediately publication across those three territories, um, and it looks as though you've also um, maybe gone into other areas, as uh, other countries as well potentially. Can you talk about that? Because I mean it's it's a fantastic new prize, obviously, um, to give people that opportunity and promote small press publishers across those jurisdictions too. How did, how did you come to kind of find out about it, apply for it, and what does it, it meant to you to win this prize?
1: Um, yeah, I sort of – I can't actually quite remember how I, I found out about it. I think I just um... – well, to the start, I just really admired all free publishers, so possibly I was sort of just on their websites or looking at their social media. Um, and, you know, this was – it was a new prize, um, which I think actually helped because, you know, they can sort of – there's nothing defined as to what it is, so it can be quite open. Um, and, you know, I just – the timing was sort of right. I sort of mainly finished the book of the manuscript, and, you know, I just thought I could, I could make the due date, so why not? Um, actually, funnily enough, the book was, um, shorter than the the minimum word length, which was already quite short, so I wrote, um, I wrote more, I wrote the part with, um, the sister in Hong Kong to, to sort of make the word length so I could enter the prize. Um, but, yeah, I did that, and, you know, obviously with prizes, there's quite a long time waiting in between, and, you know, you just really never know, um, but, you know, um, finding out was, um you know, a real shock, um, and it's just incredibly exciting, obviously, very intimidating. Um, You know, I think it's not like you don't enter a prize with some hope of winning, but I think my my sort of deepest dream was just to maybe get onto the shortlist and hope that one of the publishers would read the book in the way they might read, you know, open submissions or something. Um, But, yeah, I mean, the, the last year's pretty much been really about production, and, you know, I respect... Like I said, I've respected those publishers, all three of them for so long, and working with them was just such an honour and a privilege. And, um, you know, I think it just, they have such integrity um, and such warmth and humour and intelligence. And the working relationship um, and the editorial relationship has, has just been really
0: fantastic. Well, enormous congratulations for that. I'm afraid to say, though, you've produced such a lovely work um, that you may now have the pressure to create a, a second or a third book, a follow-up to it. Um, but I am very grateful to be able to once again read um, your sterling prose, um, Jessica Al. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about your book, uh, Cold Enough for Snow. Thank you, Mel, and thank you so much for your, your careful reading and your questions. It was really wonderful. Thank you. That was uh, Jessica Au who joined us today to talk about her second novel, Cold Enough for Snow, which is out now through Giramondo.
1: Independently yours, Triple R
0: 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg.